you got to understand that, that all that all the stuff that comes before the sermon is my church for me because every Saturday I'm the one preaching so I don't get to hear a sermon other than my own sermon so all the pre stuff is, is is church for me and I've been super blessed already by uh by uh, what's been happening so far. So it's a great service. And today we're going to get into the Bible. As you know, our church is going through a Bible reading plan together. Uh, we're going to read through the book, the whole book, the Bible together. And uh, if you don't have a Bible reading plan, we have it outside. Um, ask one of our ushers. They could give you one of the Bible reading plans if you lost it, if you want to catch up. And uh, this week's reading is based still in the Old Testament in Israel in the desert. And so we're going to be today talking about bitten but not what? Oh, okay. I guess you guys are already beaten. But today we're going to be talking about bitten but not but not beaten. That's right. Let's say a word of prayer and we'll get right into the message. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for the opportunity to speak to your people. I pray, Lord, that the word is truth and relevant. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. I grew up in the state of California, as you, many of you already know. And if you're from California, there's one thing that you are taught to fear from a very young age. And that is rattlesnakes. Everywhere you go in, you know, walking, you go hiking, anywhere you go, you always have to be on the lookout or, or keep your ears open to hear the tss, the rattle. Rattlesnakes are very poisonous. And so you could be enjoying the sunshine of California, but you got to keep your eyes open for those snakes all over California. Now, what they teach you in California is that you need to be especially afraid of the baby rattlesnakes. Because the mature rattlesnakes, when they bite you, they've already learned to just give enough poison to do the job. But the little baby rattlesnakes, they don't know anything. So when they bite you, they just let everything go. They let all their venom go. So most people that die end up dying from a bite of a baby rattlesnake. So it was to, to my horror, and it was to my great surprise, when I went to one of the theme parks in Southern California, over there in California, there's Disneyland, there is Magic Mountain, and there's a place called Knott's Berry Farm. And so it was to my horror that I was walking through Knott's Berry Farm, and, and there I find an old, you see this old barrel with the words, caution, baby rattlers. And I said, who in their right mind, with all these thousands of people walking here, kids, teenagers, children, have these baby rattlers here. This is dangerous. Someone could die. The mesh is, you know, just a little bit where people could still stick their fingers inside. And so I was afraid, but you know that with snakes, there's also fear, but a fascination, right? <laughs> people go to the zoo to, to look at snakes, even though there's a fear for snakes. So even though this was not the safest in my mind, I decided to venture a little bit closer and take a look at those fearsome baby rattlers. I scooted in with my friends little by little, kind of keeping my, my head a little distance, and I peered in, and there I found baby rattlers. The same baby rattlers that I bought my two-year-old at the store were right there, baby rattlers. There was no real snake. It was just 
pretend. But when I was reading the Bible this week, this story and this experience came to my mind because snakes are something to be feared. Not baby rattlers, but real rattlesnakes, real vipers in the desert. And we find a story in the book of Numbers chapter 21 of a people who had been protected from the venomous snakes in the desert, from the rattlesnakes, from the vipers, from the cobras, whatever it may be. But there came a time towards the end of their journey when they were no longer protected. Numbers chapter 21, verses 4 to 9. This is part of our Bible reading plan for this week. And the Bible tells us in Numbers chapter 21, verses 4 to 9. Then they journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea, to go around the land of Edom. And the soul of the people became very discouraged on the way. And the people spoke against who? God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness, they said, for there is no food and no water, and our soul loath this worthless bread. What is that worthless bread they're talking about? That manna. Verse 6 continues, So... So the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and many of the people of Israel died. Therefore the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent, set it on a pole, and it shall be that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, shall Live. In the last verse, verse 9 says, So Moses made a bronze serpent. He put it on a pole, and so it was. If a serpent had bitten anyone, when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. Let me give you a little context to this story. You see, Israel had been wandering the desert because of another sin for 40 years. They had finally come to the end of their journey. 40 years had ended. And they're going in a path, in a way that is going to take them to the promised land. In fact, they get so close, they could actually see it. They could see it with their eyes. Oh, that's the land we've been waiting for. They could see it with their eyes. But before they could enter it, they need to cross the mountains of Edom. Before they get to the milk and honey, they need to go to the mountains of Edom. So they get to Edom, where the Edomites live, and they ask them permission to go through and enter the promised land, to pass through their land. Now, Edomites were descendants of Esau, Esau and Esau was the brother of Jacob. So this is, like, this is like family, right? So they get to the Edomites, their brothers, and they ask them permission to go through their land. And what do the Edomites say? Absolutely not. In fact, if you try, we're going to go to war. And Israel had been instructed by God not to fight his brother, not to fight the Edomites, not to fight the descendants of Esau. And so the Bible tells us that they had to turn around and to enter the promised land, they had to take the long way around. They had to go all the way back to the Red Sea, almost like where they started. And along that journey, that's when the Bible says that the soul of the people became very discouraged on the way. It became very discouraged on the way. But if you could see what happened before, you can understand 
that their discouragement was fueled by their disappointment. The discouragement was fueled by their disappointment. And I think you can relate. I think we can all relate to being discouraged primarily by a disappointment. Let's say you're working at your job and they're paying you a fair wage. In fact, you're happy with your wage. You haven't even thought about asking for a raise. But all of a sudden, the news is going around the employees that the boss is going to give certain of the employees a raise. And so all of a sudden, now you get your hopes up. Now you start thinking, I could do with an extra $5 an hour, right? Now I could, I could buy this and, and that. And all of a sudden, the names come out of those who got a raise. And to your disappointment, it is not you. And now you become discouraged with your job because you were disappointed. Whereas before, when you had no hope of a raise, you were absolutely content. And so the Israelites were discouraged because they were disappointed that they could see the promised land, but they could not enter the promised land. And here is a spiritual danger. Here is a spiritual lesson that we need to be careful about, is that when you expect something God has not promised, you will get disappointed, and thus you'll become discouraged. You see, the Israelites were absolutely happy to walk in God's way as long as God's way was also their way. Because God's way was the way that they would have chosen anyway. But as soon as God changed the way from their way, all of a sudden they started having problems. Can you relate to that in your life? I want you to think about some of the biggest disappointments and discouragements in your life. Maybe you wanted to get into a certain school. Maybe you wanted to date someone or, or marry someone. Maybe you wanted to get a job in so-and-so company. And, and you wanted to do it, but it didn't happen. You were disappointed, and thus you became discouraged, and that discouragement becomes discouragement in God. You say, God, why didn't I get that job? Why didn't that person want to date me or marry me? Why didn't I get into that school? I'm so discouraged with God. But you're discouraged with God because you're expecting something from him that he didn't promise. You're discouraged with God because he is not taking you along the path that you chose. He's taking you along the path that, that he chose. He has a different path that he chose for the nation of Israel. Because what he did promise was, you're going to get into the land of milk and honey. He never told them what way. He never told them the shortest way. That was not his promise. And so many Christians find themselves in the same way. As long as God's plans line up with my plans, my life is good. But if your plans and God's plans divert, then you become disappointed and discourage. And so the soul of people was much discouraged, says the Bible, because they despised God's way. Is your soul discouraged? I hope it's not because of this. I hope it's not like the Israelites that they despised God's way, but they also despised something else. Numbers chapter 21 and verse 5, I find this 
really unbelievable. It says, and the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is, what? No food. Is that true or is that false? That's absolutely false. They said, there's no food and there's no? Have they had water? Yes, God had provided miraculously for them food and water. And I think in the next sentence, they kind of remember that, at least the food part, because they say, and our soul loathed this worthless bread. Again, what was that bread? The manna that rained down from heaven. You know, there was a pastor who told the story of an AY meeting that he never forgot for the rest of his life. He said, I was a young boy, and in this AY, AY, by the way, is Adventist Youth Meeting. It's kind of like a Vespers for youth. Oof. I know some of the old timers are like, really? Some people don't know that? Anyways, he came, and, and, and there was a special presentation by missionaries that had come from Africa. And, you know, they're there to encourage young people to be missionaries. And they came with a fantastic story. They said they had been serving in a small village in really in the remote areas of the continent of Africa when a drought came and the people had nothing to eat. They ran out of food. And the missionaries said that they started to pray and fast Pray and fast, and wouldn't you know it, another miracle happened. God rained down manna, they said. They rained down manna. But that's not why he never forgot that meeting. The reason he never forgot is because the missionaries had brought a jar of the manna with them. It was right there in the meeting. And after the meeting, all the curious people came to this jar to look very close at the manna. Well, this pastor was very uh, not sure what this was in that jar. And he remembered in the Bible that God said that if, if you kept the manna one day over, it would go what? It would go rotten and bad and have all kinds of worms in it. And as he inspected that manna, it didn't seem to have any worms or be rotten. Oh, but those people were ready for that. They said there is a pot of manna that has not gone bad in the Bible. Do you remember where it's found? In the Ark of the Covenant in the sanctuary, right? So he felt a little stumped there. And he said, I don't know if that was real manna or fake manna. But I know I had a great temptation that I almost gave into. He said, when the missionaries were not looking, I almost grabbed that jar, opened it up, and helped myself to that manna. How much do you think manna would sell at Whole Foods today? Huh? You know, you go to Whole Foods, they got, you know, this medicine you drink. They got, they got all the best stuff that will make you live longer and feel healthier. How much do you think manna would sell there? It would outsell everything. Because the Bible tells us in Psalms chapter 78, verses 24 to 25, had that he rained down manna on them to eat and gave them of the bread of what? Of where? Of heaven. And it says men ate angels Food. He sent them food to the full. He gave them angels' food, heaven's bread. And they said, what is this loathsome bread that you're giving us? And so we learn that they wanted to eat better than the best food. They wanted to eat better than the best food. And that's the condition of many believers today. God has given us the best spiritual food that there is out there. Especially Seventh-day Adventists. 
God has given us truth that no other churches have. Yet many believers, even within our own churches, are not satisfied with what God has given them. And they say, what's this loathsome spiritual teachings? I want something else. I want something more. And they go out in the world seeking something more because they wanted to eat better than the best that God has given them. One writer put it this way, many demand something deeper than the divine, more profound than the infinite, and more liberal than free grace. Let me tell you, there is nothing better. God has given you the best bread, and that's the spiritual nourishment. Don't despise it like the Israelites, because along that way, along that journey, they learn to not only despise God's way, but they learn how to despise God's bread. And it's for that reason that the Bible tells us that God sent fiery serpents among them. Because when you are not walking in God's way, and you're not eating God's spiritual food, you're exposed to the fiery serpents of evil lust, pride, and sin. You know, in California, when you're going hiking in the mountains, you see signs that say, stick to the beaten, what? To be in path. Why is that? Because when you go off the path, there's all sorts of dangers. There's all sorts of, of things that are going on. Maybe some of you saw in the news that there was a, a, a young man, he was hiking, and all of a sudden he ran across, a, I believe it was a, a mountain lion that attacked him, and he had to wrestle that mountain lion, and he saved his life by taking the life of that mountain lion. I know it seems cool and, and nice to go off the beaten path, but when God has set a way for you, it's because it's the safe way, and it's the best way. And when you go off the beaten path, that's where you find the snakes. That's where you find dangers of evil lusts, pride, and, and sin. And that's what happened to these people. Because they despise God's way and despise God's bread. So what happened after that? The people were dying. The people were falling by the thousands. And they come, and they come to Moses and they confess their sins. Therefore, the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he takes away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and it shall be that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, shall what? Shall live. What's amazing is that in the Bible, God uses symbols to make us understand things about him that we would not otherwise understand. God uses symbols to help us understand things about him which we otherwise would not understand. And we're used to that type of language. For example, if I would say the golden arches, immediately something comes to your mind. What is that? McDonald's, right? If I would, I would say an, an, an apple with a little bite on the side, immediately what comes to your mind? Your iPhone or your computer, right? Immediately we work on symbols. And if you look in the Bible, it, it teaches us more about Jesus, the symbols. For example, in the book of John, when you're reading the first chapters of John, it's almost like a parallel with, with the Old Testament. Because we find that in the Old Testament, 
when God entered this world, he said, let there be, let there be light. And in John chapter 1 verse 9 about Jesus, he says that Jesus is the true light which gives light to every man coming into the world. How did God finish creation? By the power of his word. He spoke it into existence. John chapter 1 tells us in the beginning was the was the Word, and that Word became flesh, speaking about Jesus. We learn in the Old Testament that Abel offered a sacrifice, which was probably a lamb. And in John chapter 1, verse 29, John the Baptist looks at Jesus and says, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Later on in the Old Testament, we read that Jacob had a dream of a ladder. And later on in John chapter 1, verse 51, it says that Jesus told his disciples, Most assuredly, I say to you, hereafter you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Jesus is revealed to us through symbols. But not only is he revealed to us through symbols, but Jesus can also change the meaning of symbols. Jesus can also change the meaning of symbols because when we walk into the Garden of Eden, we're introduced to a snake. And that snake doesn't bite physically Eden, I mean Eve, but that snake bites Eve with thoughts and temptations. And we discover that when God comes down and finds Adam and Eve naked and having sinned, that you know that most common human attitude comes upon them of blaming others for their deeds. And so Adam says, it wasn't my fault, it was the fault of the, of the woman you gave me. And then Eve says, it wasn't my fault, it was the fault of the snake you, you created. And you get to the snake, and the snake looks beside him, and there's no one else to blame. So he's stuck with it. And God begins to curse this snake. And when you read that chapter, you find that he begins to, to curse the symbol, but he ends up cursing what the symbol represents. So he begins by cursing the snake, the symbol, by saying, you shall crawl on the belly all the days of your life, and you shall eat the dust of the of the ground. But then he ends up cursing at the end of that curse, not the snake, but what the symbol represents, Satan, by saying that the seed of the woman will come and crush your, your head. So what is the snake a symbol of? The snake is a symbol of evil. And it even was a symbol of evil up to the time of Moses. How do I know that? Because when Moses was at the, at the fiery bush with his staff, God told him to throw that staff on the ground and it became a what? A snake. And what did the Bible tell us Moses did? He ran away. He, ran, he literally ran away. Now, if the snake was a symbol of something good and wonderful, he would have been like, oh, yeah, come here, little snake. Let me. God had to command him to pick up that snake. No, God, this is a symbol of evil. Uh, uh. He finally did it turned back into a staff. And so we understand that the snake is a symbol of, of evil, but Jesus, but Jesus came to change the meaning of that symbol. Because Jesus came to conquer Satan in every area, even the area of symbols. And so the Bible tells us in John chapter 3, verse 14 and 15, 
Jesus speaking to Nicodemus, and he says these words, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal snake. Why would God use a snake against a snake? I mean, usually when you're fighting wrong, you fight it with right. Usually when you're fighting evil, you fight it with good. But here he uses an evil symbol to fight the evil of the venom of the snake. Almost like he uses sin against sin. There's something that happened with Moses in the wilderness that became a symbol of what happened to Jesus on the cross. Because we discover now that the same thing that brings the curse brings a blessing. Because Jesus changed the meaning of the, of the symbol. You know, when you are bitten by a poisonous snake, there is really only one way for you to survive. You rush yourself to the hospital and you receive a venom antidote. But you know what's crazy about that? The antidote is made from the, from the venom. To fight the venom, you must get more venom but in a different form or a transformed venom. Isn't that amazing? So you're almost fighting evil with evil or sin with sin. And, and I was thinking, well, well how, did, how did Jesus do that? How did Jesus do that? And the memory verse that we read today just brought it all together. 2 Corinthians 5.21. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in, in him. Oh, when I read that, it just, it just all came together. The Bible is telling us that, that Jesus never lied, but he was accounted a liar. That Jesus never cheated, but he was accounted a, a cheater. He never knew no sin, but he became sin for us, so that we might become the righteousness of Christ. Jesus became it without, the Bible tells us, without doing it. We read here some beautiful quote by Ellen White, the great work that is wrought for the sinner who is spotted and stained by evil is a work of justification. The Lord imputes unto the believer the righteousness of Christ and pronounces him righteous before the universe. He transfers, he what? He transfers his sins to Jesus and the sinner's representative substitute and surety upon Christ. He lays the iniquity of every soul that believeth. The Bible tells us that if you give him the venom of sin, he will take it and turn it into the antidote of righteousness. And that's how you can be bitten, but not beaten. Oof. There's not even one amen. Jermaine, you're the only one who understands. I'm going to complain to you. There's not even one amen. What's up? We're stuck. We're stuck. It's, it's still getting to you, right? You're still seeing it. You could be bitten by sin, but not beaten by sin, because God takes your sin, that venom that's killing you, and he takes it upon himself, he lets it kill himself, but in return, he changes that venom into an antidote of righteousness. Oh, that's, oh, thank you. I thought I was at a different church, not you church. 
because your church is definitely an amen church. So only God can take what is wrong with you and use it to, to heal you. Now, <laughs> do you know what's awesome? That John chapter 3, verse 14 to 15 is when Jesus says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the, must the Son of Man be lifted up. Now listen to verse 15. Tell me if this sounds familiar. That whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Does that verse sound familiar to you? Yes or no? Where have you heard that verse before? Huh? John chapter 3.16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. There we go again. That whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. You see, in the Bible, many times God uses the teaching method of repetition. He repeats the same thing over and over again, but sometimes he just changes it a little bit. So here he's repeating the same thoughts. He says that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life, as he's expressing in verse 15. But the parallel or the repetition is also found in verse 14 and the first part of 16. In verse 16 it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And the repetition in verse 14 tells us how he gave his son. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. That's how God loved you so much. By lifting himself up on that cross and taking your venom to give you his righteousness. So that if you look at that snake, whether you've been bitten, you may live. Have you looked at Jesus in faith and believed that he could take your sinful, messed up life and turn it into one of righteousness and happiness and fulfillment. Don't despise God's ways. Don't despise God's bread. And look to the, the serpent and live. Look to the cross and live. Because Jesus loves you abundantly. I end with this. When I had my second daughter on the way, I was a little bit troubled. Because you see, I loved Gianna with all my heart, like fully. But I said to myself, if Natalia comes along, my second daughter, I'm going to have to split my love in half. And then we wanted to have five kids. And so I'm going to have to be like, you get one-fourth or you get one-fifth of my love. And I, and I was very troubled by this. But when Natalia came, I discovered something, that you don't have to split your love that you could love each child fully and completely as much as you love the other child. You could have five children, ten children, and still love them fully all the, the same. And then it hit me. When God says he loves me, many times I was thinking about everybody else in the world. Yeah, he loves me, but he's got a lot of people to love. And so his love for me is great because he's a great God, but it's kind of diluted with all the other love he has to give. But understanding my love for my daughters, I understand that he loves me fully and completely as much as he loves 
everyone else. That's why he would have come and died if I was the only lost person on this earth. And that's why he would do the same for you. Have you been bitten in this world by sin? Have you been bitten this week? Have you been hurt? Have you been shamed? Do you have guilt? Don't worry. You're not beaten. Look to your loving Savior, Jesus Christ, on that cross and live. Live today. Will you look with me? Let's close our eyes. By faith. Imagine your Savior on that cross. Imagine the bruises, the blood. And as he sees you kneeling down at the cross, he smiles and says, I did this just for you. Come and live. Thank you, Jesus Christ, that you have taken our venom to give us your righteousness. Let us not be diverted and go our own way and be discouraged. Let us be satisfied that we will follow your ways and eat on your word so that we are never bitten again because you have beaten the enemy. This I ask in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.